Continuing our series in the, the Gospel of Mark, uh, the reading that we had from verse 6 to 29 is uh, where we've been up to. We've been systematically working our way through. Um, I forget now how many sermons there were going to be, um, but we've got another 10 chapters to go. So we're up to number 11 at this point in time, and we're going to come before the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, I am weak, but you are strong. To you alone belongs truth, wisdom, and life. And Lord, we pray that our souls would be nourished by your truth, your wisdom, that you might awaken us to see you more clearly and in more of your splendor than we have seen till this day that you might transform our hearts and our affections towards you, that we might live in such a way that proclaims your excellencies. Uh, Keep me faithful in the things that I say and keep us all faithful in the way in which we respond to your word this morning. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Repentance. It's not the popular word of the day, is it? Like if you, if you were to put out a national poll, popular words, I can't imagine repentance is going to be too high up there. Especially when you take things out into the, the public sphere. Now, sometimes I think it's because when people hear that word, I couldn't actually get the images quite as bad as what I was hoping to get. They kind of think more aligned... These guys, these ones actually aren't too bad, but you know, the real sort of doom and gloom sandwich board, you know, the world's going to end tomorrow, and then you've got a whole pile of conspiracy theories probably on there as well. But why isn't the word popular? I mean, if it is declared to be part of the good news, that the perfect and holy good God declares to be the good news, why isn't it a popular word? Well, for some, they perceive it as being hate speech. Because it, it, by nature, it proclaims that things have got to change. It, means, it speaks of turning around from one thing to another. From sin to Christ. And we are a people who don't like change. It's very part of human nature. We don't like somebody else telling us what to do. We like to be our own man. And sadly, we'd have to admit at times that the word has been used, even in Christian settings, in a way that may not have been loving, in a way that may have come across as, I'm better than you, you need to repent. But a true understanding of repentance levels us all out. It says, without doubt, we are not better than them. If we have come to Christ, it's only because we were the same as them. We have seen our sinfulness before God. We have repented. We have turned to him in faith. We've seen our own wickedness. And we've seen the wonderful rescue that Jesus Christ has provided. And every, if every single person, whether they're aware of it or not, will one day stand before Jesus 
and give an account and there is only one hope by which you can be saved, then the call to repentance, to call people to the one and only means of salvation has got to be the most loving and gracious act a person can actually do. What I find odd is that there seems to be a general perception out in the world that Jesus is good. They may not like Christians, they may not like the church, but most people have got a a pretty reasonable respect for Jesus as being a nice guy, a good, a loving guy. And probably a lot of those people who make these sort of statements probably forget Jesus' opening pronouncements in this world. After John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel or the good news of God, saying the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. That's what Mark tells us. That's what we see both in in Matthew and Luke. When Jesus begins his public ministry, he declares the gospel, that is, what is the good news of God, And what is that good news of God? He says, to repent and believe. Or using more common language, to turn and to trust. So if the God who is perfectly good says, this is part of the good news, repentance is a good thing. Of all the people who have ever truly repented, turn from their sin and turn to Jesus as saviour, zero percent of them have regretted that they've done it. It's the first thing that Jesus announced. It's the first thing John the Baptist announced. We're about to see it's what Jesus taught his disciples to do, to call people to repentance. It was a priority for his ministry, for theirs, for ours. The importance we see placed on proclaiming repentance we see in two different ways in Mark chapter 6. We see the priority of proclaiming repentance in verses 6 to 13. And we see when people reject the good gift of repentance in verses 14 to 29. So firstly, the priority of proclaiming repentance. Now in the very first six verses that we looked at last week, In Mark chapter 6, we see Jesus doing exactly what he did back in Mark chapter 1, where he'd entered the synagogue, where he taught, and he did miraculous signs. Yet when it was in Capernaum, people heard his teaching and said, we have never heard anyone teach with such authority like that, not even the scribes. When they see the things which he did, they marveled, they said, we've never seen anyone do anything like this. Yet when Jesus did the exact same thing in the synagogue of his hometown of Nazareth, the people just couldn't get over the fact that we know this guy. We've we've seen him grow up. This This is Mary and Joseph's boy. We know his brothers. They asked, who has given him these things? Who's given him this teaching? Who's given him these abilities? As though there's nothing special or significant about Jesus, clearly someone superior must have given him these things. And we read in verse 6, one of the only two times where it says that Jesus marvelled 
And it was that Jesus marvelled at their unbelief. That they could see the same things that everyone else could see. Yet they could not come to a right view of who he was. He even says he was unable to heal except for to heal a few. Didn't mean that somehow he was robbed of his power to have the ability to heal. But rather that was never his priority. We've seen a number of times where people have flocked around him because they want to see healings, they want to see great signs. And Jesus ends up going somewhere else. He says, no, I didn't come here for that. I came here to preach. Wherever people were there for a show, if they would not listen, he would move on to a people who would listen rather than entertain a crowd who just wanted to see. And it's a principle that we see Jesus teaching to his disciples in these verses. Because there comes a point in discipleship and training where it's got to be hands-on. There's a limit to how much you can pass on just by teaching about something or allowing people to, to watch you do something. There needs to be a chance to have experience, have a go, get feedback. Like Jesus himself said, part of the reason why he had gathered the twelve around him, pointing them as apostles so that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach. That was always his intention, to be with him, to learn, to be shaped, to be formed, but to also send them out. And here, I suppose, effectively for the first time, he's sending them out in like a little, like a mission trip type of thing. You can't expect people to get equipped just by teaching them certain things, saying, watch this, or give them a book about it. So Jesus sends the 12 out on their first hands-on mission trip. They've watched Jesus, they've learnt, they've heard him teach. He called the 12, began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. Why two by two? Is this, is this the beginning of the door-to-door Mormons? They're two by twos? Surely you'd get more people if you sent 12 out. You've only got six groups if you do two by two. Imagine how many more people you could get if you get one by one for 12. But there's got to be a reason. Well, think about the Old Testament law. Think, for example, of Deuteronomy chapter 17 and various other places in the Old Testament scriptures. For anything to have valid witness, you needed two witnesses. A point could not be authoritatively made in the presence of one witness. You required two. But not only that, but working together in pairs, or even if it was more, does not half the work that can be done. If anything, it probably makes it more effective. We have a mixture of gifts, a group who are working together, strengthening one another. The load is shared. And so I pondered that myself in my own ministry. I came to the conclusion that it's been one of my weaknesses. I've done too much on my own. But if you've got a keen eye, you're probably a little bit surprised as you heard the reading about both is what is said but also that which isn't said. 
Like if Mark chapter 3, verse 14, disciples were to be with Jesus in order that he might send them out to preach, is that the mission that Jesus sent them here on this occasion? Because if you just read the content of verse 7, you could think, well, he's only talked about going out two by two and giving them authority over unclean spirits. That would be inconsistent with what Jesus has said before, if that is what he was sending them out to do. You look at three occasions where Jesus specifically sets out to preach. Mark 114, 139, 6 verse 6 says Jesus went out to preach. Often while he was preaching, he would also do other things. But there is zero times where it says that Jesus went out specifically for the purpose for healing and casting out demons. That was always secondary. Almost the way the author of Hebrews declares it in chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. He said, how shall we escape if, if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord. So first thing declared by the Lord. And it was attested to us by those who heard while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Miraculous signs have never been the focal point of the mission. If anything, they were clearly to bear witness to the mission that was being proclaimed. And there are also two clear signs in Mark chapter 6. That proclamation was the priority of this mission. When you look at verses 11 and 12, he says, And if in any place they will not receive you and they will not listen to you. So he says, the most important thing is that they listen. If they don't listen, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So what did the disciples do in response? They went out and they proclaimed that people should repent. Jesus is pretty clear. He's like, if they don't listen, you have a message, you have a preaching, proclamation, ministry. If they won't listen, don't waste your time entertaining them with signs and wonders. Move on. And that's exactly what they did. They went out to proclaim that people should repent. So just like their master, proclamation was primary, signs were secondary. So Jesus sends them out with authority over spirits, but he also gives them a list of do's and don'ts, which, when we read it, might at first seem a little bit odd. They're allowed to take a staff, they're allowed to take the sandals, although some of the other accounts don't even include the sandals. I'm okay with that, I don't mind bare feet. They're allowed to take one tunic, they're allowed to take a belt. But they can't take bread, or probably could say they can't take food, they can't take money, can't take a bag, or any more than one tunic. In other words, what you've got on now, nothing else, go. Take your clothes on your back and a stick, and off you go. Now I've intentionally grouped those two things together the instructions that he gives about what they can take and what they can't take, 
along with Jesus sending them out with authority over unclean spirits. Because I think, to an extent, they serve the same purpose. Jesus wants his disciples to realise that in everything, both in all of their provisions, the things that they need for day-to-day life, but even for the ministry entrusted to them, they are 100% dependent upon God to provide everything that they need. They were told not to take anything that they could use as a way of saying, this is what I did. But they depend upon God and upon God alone. It's not what you have, it's what he has. It's not what you do, it's what he can do through you. Because whether it be through a Billy Graham or through a Shazza next door, all salvation, all effective ministry is work that God has done through that individual. So from day one, he's made it clear. If you want to change the world, if you are going to impact this world, if this kingdom is going to grow in the way in which Jesus' parables represent it to, it's only going to happen by dependence upon the one who gives the growth, who does the ministry, who makes it effective, who enables the faithful actions of his people. Or reflecting upon the Great Commission. Remember the command to go and make disciples of all nations? Sandwiched between all authority in heaven has been given to me and that I will be with you to the end of the age. You can cry repent all day till the cows come home but you don't have the ability to make somebody repent. Repentance is a gift that only God can give. We see two examples, say, for example, Acts chapter 11. When they'd heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God, saying, then to the Gentiles God has granted or given repentance that leads to life. Or 2 Timothy 2, 25 and 26, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth that they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. So we learn from Jesus the importance of proclaiming repentance, but at the same time we recognise that he alone is the one who grants the gift of repentance. We're entirely dependent upon him. Not our skills, not our witty arguments, but upon God who gives life and growth to everything. Because repentance is not something natural that comes to the human race. None of us naturally are inclined to repent. It needs to be given. And unless God grants repentance, the call to repentance will always be met with hostility. Or to go back to what we said in 2 Timothy 2.26, without repentance being granted, they will remain captive to do the will of Satan. Which effectively means any call to call someone outside of Christ to do the will of God will inevitably be rejected and opposed. And I think Christians would do really well 
to spend more time lovingly calling people to turn to Jesus rather than expecting people who are not followers of Jesus to change their behaviour in conformity to God's will. Because as we've just seen in Timothy, they're captive to another will. The only way in which you can get them into conformity to God's will is to bring them to Christ, not by just modifying their behaviour. There's an importance and a priority on proclaiming repentance. But this gift of God is also a gift which people often reject, regardless of how good it is. I've got a trivia question here. Who wants to take a guess what I did for work experience in grade 10? I can guarantee you it wasn't a pastor. That idea would have been abhorrent to me at the time. Sorry? Mechanic? Actually, I did actually apply for an apprenticeship mechanic after high school, but no, that wasn't it. I did my work experience in advertising. Can you imagine the sort of weird ads we'd have? If I did advertising, there'd be some cracker jingles too. (laughs) But the goal of advertising is basically to convince people that they need something. It's not really a skill that carries across to ministry that well because only God can open people's eyes to their need for him. In verse 14, we are introduced to Herod the Great. Now, he's called the Great because of his achievements, particularly his buildings and all those sorts of things, not because of his wonderful character that we're about to see. He's got some degree of Jewish heritage and he considers himself to be a pious Jew, although we'll see very quickly that that's not a great description of him. I think his, his leanings towards Judaism was more of for political gain than actually having any... Um, ethics or morals at all but it says upon hearing it now sometimes one of the disadvantages of our headings of the bible think oh this is a whole new story but when we had it read and you see it just flows that it was that there was this jesus who was sending these 12 out on this mission and upon hearing about this he's concluded that john the baptist has come back from the dead Now, we read that other people have said, oh, maybe it's Elijah, maybe it's one of the other prophets. But Herod was known to be paranoid. He was always worried that somebody was going to take away his authority. And now you can see how he makes the conclusions like, I didn't want to, but I had this guy's head chopped off. Surely he's he's coming back to get me now. And they kind of sent us backwards now to kind of admitting that that is, now that he's saying that, the story goes back to the history of, how John the Baptist died. John the ba- Baptist, well, Herod in particular, actually had a lot of respect for John the Baptist. He enjoyed listening to him. He probably even considered him a friend. It was kind of like he was, he was intrigued, but not so much enough to, to take it on board. You know how some people, they like to talk about Christian things but they don't want to commit to it? He was kind of in that sort of a boat. But he's far from great in his character. It's his birthday, he's hosting a party, he's got some some elite people around him, got some people of power and he's decided to get his teenage niece to dance to entertain his guests. 
you're probably presuming he's actually talking about like a, a sensual sort of dance from his teenage niece to entertain himself and his guests. At this point, you start to feel a bit sick in the stomach and think, that's pretty gross. His own niece. Pretty gross. She's described in verse 22 as a young girl. It's the exact same language that is used of Jairus' daughter, who was a 12-year-old girl. And the reason why she's his niece is another part of his very poor character. He has married his brother's wife, his sister-in-law. And as someone who considered himself a pious Jew, you can understand why John thought, hang on, we better have a bit of a chat about this. They're not real that consistent. This idea of saying you're a pious, law-abiding Jew and you've taken your brother's wife. You can't do that. You can't just marry your sister-in-law. And poor old Herod, well, not poor old Herod, he's a bit torn. He likes to listen to, to John the Baptist. He likes John the Baptist, but not as much as he loves his new wife. But you know what I think is the sickest detail in this, in this story? It says that Herod and his guests, but Herod took pleasure in his niece's dancing, his teenage niece's dancing. So much so that he said he would do anything for her, giving her up to half a kingdom, which probably not a little literally. That was a common expression, just like when somebody says, I love you to the moon and back, doesn't mean that you know, you're going to go on some romantic date with Buzz Aldrin to the moon and back. Feel free to do it if you, if you want to. Not too sure if Buzz has taken passengers. But she's not too sure what to do with this, this request that she's got. She's like, man, I could ask for anything. She's only young. She asks her mum, what should I do? I get the impression her mum didn't need to think about that. We've already seen beforehand that she resented John the Baptist because he'd been telling Herod, you can't have your brother's wife. Said she'd been looking for an opportunity to kill him, but hasn't been able to. And now her daughter comes to her and says, Herod just says, I can have whatever I want. What should I ask? No scratch in the head. John the Baptist's head. My moment has arrived. She's like, everything I've ever wanted just been handed to me right here and right now. Sometimes, you know, the way parents influence their kids. You know, you hear a child talking about somebody or something, you're like, you are so your mother's daughter or, or whatever else because they've inherited their, uh, their parents' opinions of something. I get the impression possibly the daughter shares some of that bitterness as well because she adds an extra detail that goes even beyond what Herodias had asked for. She came immediately with haste to the king and asked, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. This is a pretty sick little party, this one, isn't it? Not only the things that are going on there, but she says, I don't just want his head. Give it to me on a platter. A bit of camembert over here, a bit of quince paste, and John the Baptist right there in the middle. Now, poor Herod's in a bit of a predicament. 
He liked John. He probably regarded him as a friend. But here he was trying to show off to all his mates in positions of power. And he said, I'll give you anything. Yet the request was for John the Baptist's head. He didn't want to appear weak as though he can't follow through on his things. So he gave the words. Got an executioner? Yep. Go cut off his head. Deal done. And as the head comes back on the platter, as requested, straight to Herodias, so it's pretty clear whose request it really is, and she's like, great, straight to the pool room. There's no question it was her request, Herodias. She had become so embittered that John the Baptist would even think to say, you can't claim to be a law-abiding Jew and marry your sister-in-law that she wanted him dead and finally she has got everything that she wanted. She would rather have a husband's friend beheaded than give up on something that she wanted, that she desired. I can't think of too many more graphic pictures in the Bible of the hold that sin has on people. To think that you would want someone that your husband likes and respects, their head chopped off because you don't like that they want to call you to behave in a different way. Because outside of Jesus, mankind are helpless slaves to sin. Now you hear people say all the time, I'm free, I do whatever I want. Yet unknowingly, Serving Satan in all that they do. And never even taking a moment to wonder why it is they constantly get themselves so frustrated in their own choices, in their own actions that they regret. Sadly, even amongst Christians, you know that the fight can be real. And in my experience, if there's any area of somebody's life that they don't want to listen to somebody's opinion, it's their relationships. I know they're not a Christian, but but they support me in what I do and they're so perfect. You have no idea how many times I've had that conversation. And guys in the leadership development team have been told they're going to get an email of a pastoral situation to respond to. Some of you will get that one. People can change, not by changing themselves. They need to be made new. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Because other than the work of the Holy Spirit to convict us of our sin, to point us to and see the value of Jesus as the only sufficient saviour, Without being made new, we're just stuck in a rut of our sin. That's why evangelism can be so hard. Sure, Jesus can change even the hardest case. But if he doesn't, you'll always be met with opposition and resistance. There might be some who are like Herod. like, I like you, I've got a lot of respect for you, I like listening to you, but that Jesus thing, that's not for me. 
particularly if you expect me to change the way in which I live. People don't want to change. Some people just prefer their own sin. Some even love their sins so much. I've even heard people articulate it. I'm willing to risk the possibility that maybe you're right. That maybe there is an eternal judgment for those who don't turn to Christ for salvation. I've heard people say, I'm willing to risk that. But I don't want to change. It's a risk worth taking, they tell me. There are not odds regarding this. You're not taking a risk of, wonder how the odds are going to pan out. 100% is a point of a man to die once and then face judgment. There is only one saviour. Risking your odds on judgment, not going to happen, or things might just pan out good in the end. It's kind of like going up to the top of the old sky tower down at surface paradise, jumping off, just on the hope that maybe a big flock of birds might fly past and, and soften your fall and lower you gently down to the ground. Except, you know what, as ridiculous as that is, that's actually got better odds. Like it almost seems unconceivable that people would refuse God's free gift of salvation. To think that when you put it in plain terms, it's like, I choose the disease over the cure. I choose sin over salvation. I choose death over life. But such is the controlling power of the disease of sin that people often can't see it unless God opens their eyes, unless God grants repentance. They'll be stuck in a rut. We need to be a people who are constantly praying for those we know. We need to be constantly sharing the good news that God has made known. Not everyone will be like Herodias. Some will be hard. There'll be others who look seemingly impossible. People like Saul became Paul. Who in an instant of encountering Jesus turned from persecuting and wanting to destroy the church to being one of the greatest servants of the church. I want us to think about two things, caring and preparing. Firstly, caring enough to call people to repentance. Do not believe the lie that talking about repentance is unloving. There is never a situation when offering a guaranteed, no side effect free cure to a disease is unloving. Offering eternal life, forgiveness, being reconciled to Jesus is not an unloving gesture. Leaving someone on the trajectory they're already heading on towards judgment, to have to give an account before him. Everlasting punishment, to not warn people of that, is unloving. We live in a world that says our message is outdated and irrelevant. And the moment Christians start believing that lie, we rob the world of its one and only hope of salvation. We need to love our neighbour enough 
politely reject that false premise. And driven by our love for them to our knees, that we pray for those people that we interact with, whether it be our neighbourhoods, our workplaces, wherever we go, seeking God, longing that he would set them free. To pray often, God, give me opportunities. God, help me have the wisdom to see them, not to, not to try and force them when they're not there. To take them when they are there and to desperately depend upon you because only you can save them. Not how I act in a situation. And if that care is, and love is to be genuine, it'll actually be seen as being genuine and loving by the people who receive it. It was the priority of Jesus that he passed on to his disciples and it's a priority for all of us. But we also need to be prepared. Prepared for both. We need to be prepared both that people will respond in repentance and faith. Even people that you might not have expected. But also that some people will respond in a way that you don't like that might be unpredictable hopefully not quite to the extent of Herodias because despite the power of the gospel unless God does the work people will oppose they will resist they will resent the gospel it is foolishness to those who are perishing after all remember Herod loved John the Baptist But when they do speak negatively or respond negatively, don't take it personal. It's not you that they dislike. It's the message they dislike. They don't like the fact that there is a God. The more they ignore that, the less they feel that they are obligated to him. They're not rejecting you, but rejecting Jesus and his glorious kingdom offer. That's not something that we should be worried about, what people say about us, but we should be worried about their eternal souls. That we should persist, regardless of a statistical success rate, knowing that the gospel is the power of God for salvation for all who will believe. Not just those who are more likely to, but whoever. And finally, having that assurance, as Jesus proclaimed in John chapter 6, all whom the Father calls to him will come to him. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come before you knowing that we were a people who recognised that we needed to repent. We were a people who recognised that we had not honoured you. In fact, we had lived as hostile enemies of yours, proclaiming we don't need you, proclaiming you have no right over our life, proclaiming that we think we know better than the God who gave us life and breath and everything. Lord, you would be well and truly within your right to come in and wipe us all out because of the way in which we have treated you. 
but we thank you that you are good, gracious and merciful. That Jesus Christ came into the world and was even planned before the foundation of the world. That he would come, that he would bear upon himself the punishment for our sin and be raised to newness of life that all who would turn from their sin and place their trust in his work to live for him as our true, good, loving king would know all of the blessings of being your children and life eternal. Lord, we thank you that gracious offer is still available for the entire world as, as long as we have breath. Help us to prioritise the things that you prioritise. Help us to speak what you declare to be good news. Out of our love for you and out of our love for our fellow human beings. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. For those who like to read in advance where we're headed next week, we'll be looking still in Mark chapter 6, verses 30 to verse 56, which I believe is the end of the chapter. We're going to move to a time of communion, which we do every first and third Sunday in our times together, where we remember the thing that Jesus has done to reconcile us to God. Through his death on the cross, that Jesus willingly partook of. In fact, Jesus articulated it was the very reason for his coming into this world was to lay down his life, to be a saviour for sinners.